All right, welcome back to another very quick session of the Art of Blind Spotting podcast. I'm Jeff. Katana. I'm Jake. I'm Lee. And we just watched a film from the A24 studio by director Yorgos Lanthimos called Ooh. The Killing of a Sacred Deer. He's one of my favorite new directors dropping things. It's a really interesting psychological thriller, I think. My third time watching it, so I'm going to let you all give your impressions first. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm not familiar with his work. I've never <clears throat> seen anything by him before. Of course, I'm familiar with A24, and they consistently put out good shit. But I didn't know it was an A24 film going into it. I kind of like that. Yeah. I like not knowing really much about the movie before I get into it so that I can just judge it as an independent piece. You know? Let me ask yeah. you, what was the very first thing you all noticed about this movie? The acting was just like deliberately terrible. The terrible. speech is intentionally stilted. Yes. It's yeah. intentionally got this like, real autistic vibe to yeah. it. Robotic, yeah. just removed from human emotion. Right. Not very colorful. It makes you feel weird. Yeah. And I get that. Artistically, that's kind of cool. Personally, that's the one thing I did not like about the movie. Mm -hmm. I love the cinematography, all of the slow zooms, long shots. The movement of the camera as well, the up angles of the camera a lot of times. It was really well filmed. The writing, I don't know if it's intentional, but the writing just seemed a little lackluster to me. There wasn't really much in the dialogue. And again, maybe that's intentional to make you feel weird and stuff, but that's just a personal preference of mine. It makes you feel a certain way. I, I understand that. I like that aspect of it that it makes you feel uncomfortable. That's what it set out to do. So in that way, it's a good movie. Just the acting is the biggest issue for me. And, you know, maybe you guys can help me feel better about that. I don't know. Well, with this movie, I got unsettling from the first shot. Colin Farrell's character relationship to Martin and, you know, what was going on between those two. And there is this kind of sacred essence to the concept of marriage that relationship that bond i feel like was reflected here in this movie but just made it to where you know this family unit you know it's a successful doctor a beautiful wife a beautiful children it seems like the picturesque type of way and as soon as something we want to categorize as evil interrupts that who's the person to keep everything together even though there's that lack of human emotion throughout most of the film all of these things that were kind of leading to the reasons why these children are dying is just small comments, very unsettling dialogue that's happening. But that's where I would think the lack of human emotion kind of benefits in this film. Don't you think, Jeff? Yorgos Lanthimos, the director, he's also made The Lobster and Dogtooth. It's a common theme in the universe of his films to have stilted dialogue because I think it makes you pay more attention to what's happening between the margins, like what's happening with their intentions and actions rather than their emotions. And I'm just going to push back a little bit on the observation that it was bad acting because I think it's incredibly hard to speak that <laughs> fucked up and unnaturally consistently. You think so? I think it's really easy. Try it's being a sociopath. It just seems today. like to me, to me, when I was listening to it, there's hardly any spaces in between the sentences. To me, that says that I'm just saying this off the top of the dome. I just memorized this line for this scene right here, and I'm just getting it out to get it out. Ah, scene's over. Scripted. That's what it felt like Scripted. to me. 
It felt like they didn't even try really acting wise. They were just like, you know what? We got some big names here. We're just going to have them read these few lines per scene. They don't really have a lot of time to speak, right? right? Especially when they're even on the screen. Most of the time when they're speaking, they're off the screen. Most of the dialogue, as is with transition scenes a lot of the time, but you always hear the dialogue first. And then finally, you'll see them say like the last part of their dialogue. And anyway, they only speak in like six word sentences maximum the entire mm -hmm. time. I mean, dialogue aside, especially Nicole Kidman, when she kind of bought into the curse and started trying to go about it. Yeah, they're not saying a lot, but you can see the determination and the emotion in her face. I think the dialogue, because it's so stilted, it asks you to focus on what they're doing with their faces and the motivations of the character. It's very easy to miss the relationship of Martin to the main character if you're not really paying attention. And I think that's kind of a reason the dialogue is as stilted as it is. It just really wants you to lean into the mystery more so. And I know that you said that you feel like some things weren't answered, so let's yeah. get into that. What part of the... Well, a big hole in the story is the fact that they never even talked about running a toxicology report or anything to see if it was poison. They never once spoke about neurotoxin, and it seemed like it was that curse. was probably... But why, why is it just written off so quickly? They're doctors. Why didn't they think to check for some kind of neurotoxin before they said, yeah, it's a curse? To me, that just didn't fit. I'm sorry, didn't they run neurological? No. They, they ran neurological tests and they ran MRIs and right, maybe but that's they didn't not, check for a poison. But right, that's the most obvious solution. Why wouldn't that even be spoken about? Yeah. I don't know. I, I just felt like poison was never on the table. Right, but it should have been because those are symptoms of poisoning. Oh, okay. Those are oh. symptoms of neurological poisoning. Or it was implied like, that they ran all of the basic tests that yeah. would be in that situation. Right. That, and they did imply, yeah. This like, movie... how could you not talk about poison? Because okay. that's the only way that that kid could have logically, scientifically affected the family in that way, as if he poisoned them in some way. I guess this is a time to talk about where the title comes from. The killing of a sacred deer yeah. comes from the Greek mythology of Iphigenia, which was very briefly mentioned in the movie. Mm. Are you familiar with it at no, all? No. Okay. So this is what I was going to get to. If this movie is meant to be just a straight allegory, then it's cool. If you suspend it from being an actual movie with a storyline and you just take it as an allegory, like, for example, Jordan Peele, Us. Because it's supposed to be a tragedy, yeah. right? So, so, I mean, yeah. In go Greek mythology, Iphigenia was a daughter of King Agamemnon and Queen Clytemnestra. Wow. Just, just wow. Go just go ahead. That's All loaded. Right. Bam, bam, bam. Right. That's what she said. <laughs> so in the story, her father, the king, he offends the goddess Artemis on his way to the Trojan War by accidentally killing one of her sacred deer. She retaliates by preventing the Greek troops from reaching Troy unless the king kills his eldest daughter. Ooh. So I think they showed enough to show that it was a mystical curse. It wasn't a physical event. It was a curse, and it wasn't psychological. This was something that... That weird-ass kid just manifested with his heartbreak from what he perceived to be losing his father to negligence. Right. So he didn't poison them at all. That's just what uh, it was. He manifested. No, no, I realized that, that. I realized that at the end, it, it has to have just automatically been a curse yeah. because the daughter can walk again. So that means that it was definitely a curse. I, I yeah. got that. I got yeah. that part of and it. And they spelled that out, I think, most explicitly when he's like, all right, I'm going to say this as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. One. Yeah. Blah, 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 two, blah, blah, blah. When he just fires off the symptoms. Yeah. And as fast as they were talking throughout the movie, that was Rock. intentionally the quickest yeah. bit. I think part of the style is trying to get you to 
not latch onto the dialogue and just like really react to what's happening between the characters. Yeah. Right. I think this movie is like a lot more focused on what's not said rather than what's said. And I think that's my issue. I'm always looking for the lyrics, the potency of lyrics and songs. Same with movies. What are the lines I'm going to write down and be like, yeah, this is a cool quote. But this movie was very in between the lines. It was more focused on what was not said. I viewed the boy, Martin. I viewed him as like a physical representation of the rift that was already existing between the family because I saw no human essence there, no real emotions and no love. And I just saw clinical removedness and coldness in the family. So I viewed the boy as a ghost representation of like, hey, this is the rift and like you have to choose one. Your family is dying because of the dynamics that already exist in it right now. And it's kind of because of you, you douche. So you have to pick a child. You have to sacrifice. Something's got to give for this family to regain balance. And that's what I viewed that boy as, as a mirror to the family dynamics that existed. If we take it beyond and we go to the metaphor like that, then I think it's really interesting to break down these possible meanings. Let's, um, let's unpack that a little more. What were the examples of him not having the attachment or love for his family that would have brought that physical manifestation into their lives? I guess one of the first examples when it comes to the relationship from the doctor to Martin was he was trying to appease him even beforehand. He was giving him presents. He was trying to apologize for his example. And he clearly made the mistake of going into surgery, you know, that's the whole reveal. It's very, very minute to those types of details, but that was one of the first red flags. I was like, okay, this is going to be a weird relationship regardless, because it was kind of like the doctor was pandering to Martin. One of the first scenes that comes up is the heart, and then they're walking down the the hall, and they're talking about watches. Time is probably one one example of what they have limited amount of, you know, and there was examples of time throughout, but you know, gifting that watch, giving a kid that, and the example of him changing it from a metal strap to a leather strap, he's not accepting the gift. You gave it to me, but it's still not enough. You know, you did something to my family. I'm going to have to get revenge on you. So Okay, I can kind of see that for sure. And that's definitely something I wanted to get a little bit more into was the concept of time and how that's used. I do want to kind of latch on to the original allegory. Yeah you posed as Martin being a physical manifestation as the rift that existed between the family. I personally didn't see that rift, so I'm interested in hearing what those examples are. So with the watch, right? That immediate focus, uh, I think Lee's 100% right on this. The immediate focus and that conversation about the watch and how the metal band is better, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, it's tougher, right? I think that was kind of the idea, and it went yeah. down deeper too, right? So his watch was only... 100 meters deep but the one that he gave to martin went down 200 meters so that's just to me that was a representation of how he was divesting even more time from his family right he's taking even more time away from his family yeah. his job the cold metal clinical aspect of his job that was stealing most of his time from his family in the first place that was creating the rift then something related to that he kills martin's father or whatever whatever happened with martin's father martin father died and then Martin comes back. He feels like he needs to help Martin, which is taking away even more time from his time with his family, right. creating more of a rift. And then not only does he give Martin that better watch, that more expensive watch with the metal strap, but he changed it to leather too, right? So 
changing the more clinical metal environment for something that's more real and tangible mm -hmm. leather that's skin that's the skin of an animal that's also used in witchcraft and mm -hmm. in casting curses right leather and any kind of animal right. skin or animal things like that right it's like earth <laughs> right it's included in curses so that's really interesting to steal even more of their time the fact that he was also a male too and they ended up killing the boy child yeah. it's like almost like he replaced him in a way right that his son wasn't getting enough attention so yeah. he was giving that attention to martin but his his time was misplaced he was spending his time in the wrong areas mm -hmm. and i to me that was like the whole allegory of what the movie was trying to say. That's what I took out of it. Okay, yeah. I yeah. definitely can see the time allegory. Uh, what was more present to me was that it seemed like either the surgeon was trying to replace his son with Martin or Martin was trying to infiltrate the family. That was mm -hmm. definitely more present with all the puberty talk between them and all that shit, which, again, I think the dialogue being so stilted and weird makes that shit pop out even more yeah. and makes it more prevalent. Mm -hmm. True. Actually, I missed it. So, oh, yeah. when they're talking yeah. about, oh, how much, I, I got how much hair do you have yeah. under your arms? Yeah. Like, oh, uh, it's not that much. Blah blah blah. Right. Yeah. As yeah. we're like, talking about that shit it now, being realize, so yeah. weird, it right. allows you to latch on to those kind of details. And but that's yeah. the unsettling. So part yeah, again, yeah. I think we're all kind of on the same path. Uh, not that Martin was the originator of the curse. Maybe accelerated it if you want to get into the narrative, but. Yeah, the doctor was living the curse by spending his time in the wrong place, and that curse manifested itself by Martin coming into life. And oh, wow. so I, I do think it is a pretty good adaptation, narratively and allegorically, of the killing of a sacred deer. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, after having this conversation about it, especially that perspective, and then you, Lee, making me think back about the time allegory and everything. In that aspect, you're right. The dialogue would probably take away from that. So I yeah, if there was more over dramatic acting and uh, yeah. making it, you know, oh look, you know, why are we killing this? The one scene that I really want to focus on was when the doctor, he's in the kitchen with Nicole Kidman, and he's just sitting there. He's just like, wait, so what exactly do I have to do? Do I have to get the tooth of a crocodile? You know, yeah. like they've already led to the idea that it is actually a curse, and he's just like, well. How the hell am I supposed to change any of this? There's no solution. And the way they have to lead themselves into having to sacrifice his kid, it's so irrational. All of the actions throughout, you know, from Nicole Kidman to the, the daughter to the son, they were all irrational to the reactions that they were having from this rift. You know, there's this, the other scene that Nicole Kidman is standing, it's in the middle of the night and her daughter comes home and she's just like, Oh, how are you feeling? Right. That's just something that no one was asking anyone. And of course, Nicole Kidman was feeling like shit because her son collapsed in the hospital, right. which was a great shot right. down, which is beautifully done. But that leads her to no one's kind of asking. But that's the detachment of the feeling. Like if there was a lot more feeling in these acting parts, it would have changed the movie entirely. The tone of the movie. Can we dive down. a little deeper into that real quick? So in terms of the emotion that scene specifically you just reminded me the daughter asks first how is bob she says he's absolutely fine right something along those lines and then how are you feeling mom mm -hmm. i'm absolutely fine absolutely fine not only is there no emotion in the way that they're looking at each other and 
the way that they're speaking. There's also no emotion in the things that they're saying. And it's almost like a purposeful pushing down of the emotion. Mm -hmm. And that may be that may be the purpose then. Or that may be another purpose then is to teach the lesson that it's not good to bottle all your emotions up inside and to constantly push them down and say, no, everything's fine. No, everything's fine. Right. No, deal with what the problem is. See, because that's, I think that's part of the problem with the father character, right? Colin mm -hmm. Farrell's character. I think that's one of the problems with his character because... Was it just the characters within the family that had stilted emotions or was that not present in everybody in the universe of that film from the hospital staff to Martin's mother even? It definitely affected the perception of the emotions between everybody, but I think that was a just kind of a standard norm in the universe of that film. Which I think is an interesting aspect. Well, now that you bring it up, though, Martin's mother is the only one who actually showed emotion. Yeah. She was the only one who actually Desper started smiling. Desperation, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that came from a desperate place because she was deep in grieving, right? So, yeah. but, so then there has to be a purpose for that, right? The fact that the rest of the characters were all like blank, deadpan, but then she showed that desperation and emotion. Why? Because the only other two times in the film where we have explosions like that is... What he was talking about when Colin Farrell's character is ripping up the kitchen, and mm -hmm. then the other one when he goes onto their porch and starts banging things down. Yeah. So the only characters that I could see visibly expressing emotion in this film were the ones that were desperate and unhinged. So who's to say that the others weren't absolutely fine? Huh. Okay. I think there's something to be said about maybe this movie trying to prove a point that having human emotions and expressing human emotions is a good thing. And it's actually like a survival mechanism because the people that didn't express those and that were cold and removed ultimately were, they were going to die. They were written off as, Hey, everybody in the family that was like keeping their shit together contained their human emotions. They were going to die. Right. There was like a ticking time bomb there, but Martin's mom, she was, Putting her shit out there. She was vulnerable, but she was the one that was spared from this curse. So there might be something to say about this movie saying that if you embrace your human emotions and shit, you'll be spared from the curse of being a cold, robotic human. You know? Possibly. But that also brings into my mind the character of Bob, the one that ultimately did die toward the end there. He was starting to express more emotions. He gave the haircut because uh, you could tell he thought, oh, this is happening because I wasn't listening to my parents. Right, and right. then uh, oh. he was probably the most remorseful character in the film. And ultimately, yeah. he literally bites the bullet. So, right. But guilt, shame, right? Our parents do that to us. Guilt and shame will also be things that will kill you. In a sense, they'll kill who you are as a person. So maybe he represented that, like need to please the family and shit. How we all kind of feel in our family sometimes. Jumping through hoops. They constantly kept asking him to do things, right? Like water right. the plants, and he didn't want to do it. He just right. wanted to be a kid. He wasn't ready for that responsibility. Maybe you don't see it this way, but it could be that he feels like he's being forced in a way to grow up faster than he wants to. He's a kid. He wants, he wants to just let his hair grow out. He wants to have fun. He wants to be free. And they're like, hey, no, take responsibility. But then at the end of the day, they end up killing the child who was remorseful that mm -hmm. he didn't take more responsibility and he didn't do the things that they want him to do. But ultimately, they took his childhood either way. They're, they were trying to take his childhood from both directions. They were trying to take his childhood by 
trying to force him to do these things that he didn't want to do. And then literally took his childhood by killing him or he lived it out. I'm going to push back a little bit because they didn't force him to do it. A running theme in the movie was that he was just neglecting the responsibilities. Right, right. If they right. were forced to, they were really asking nicely. Said, well, hey, hey, we don't man, know. We you... don't know how they were asking because emotion is suspended. Right. All right. Not asking nicely, but they were definitely patient because they show them asking multiple times. Hey, could you get the plants? But we don't know what the real emotions were like, right? Because we're saying emotions are suspended for the most part throughout everybody in the universe, okay, right? Okay, yeah, and emotions yeah. I, only I come agree. out. The emotions are suspended, so we don't know the tonality. But right. if your parents ask you to water the plants, I don't do it. But if they ask you a couple times, maybe fulfilling responsibilities, domestic yeah. responsibilities to your parents and them asking you to do it doesn't make them a monster. But again, you're right. We don't know how they ask. But I don't think that makes them monsters. I still think the curse came from the father just being negligent. I really do think it was a literal, more Iphigenian curse. You took mine and now I got to take one of yours. And I think everything you're saying is valid, but that was just a consequence of because the father brought this curse and the kid didn't know how to deal with it, he was interpreting and projecting all those feelings onto himself. Like, oh, maybe this is my fault because I didn't cut my hair and blah, blah, blah. So right. that's a valid interpretation, and but I so, don't think that was the cause of the death. But maybe, maybe that is. But no, I mean, obviously it's not. If they specifically mentioned... When they did mention it, that was when the father went to visit the principal... And he was like, oh, which kid would you keep? And he specifically mentions, well, your daughter wrote a really good thesis on right. uh, Iphigenia. And then he yeah. uh, talked about how yeah. nice Bob was, but didn't really have academic oh. qualities. And then he's talking oh. about how I can't answer that question for him. Yeah. So, I, I really do well, think they showed, yeah, yeah. I think they showed <laughs> enough in the film to say that this was an adaptation of that curse. Oh, okay. I do think the responsibility lies with the father. But yes, they were showing how that responsibility misinterpreted had effects on the boy, on the girl. Oh, we didn't even talk about Kim, the girl. Like, she mm -hmm. was caught in this fucking kind of yeah. Stockholm Syndrome situation between yeah. Martin and her family. Right. And at the end, she was kind of what felt, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, because uh, she thought she could run off with him, but then when she knew she couldn't. I don't know. That right. was interesting, too, right? Because... At the very end, when she's walking out, right. it's like this, like almost smile and then not. Right. What mm -hmm. was that expression? Like, I'm still puzzled. Like, what was that? Like, she was well, that's obviously. That's the great thing about this yeah, fucking it's film. Open. Right? It's disturbing. It leaves it open. <laughs> it does not close up for you. It leaves your mind wandering. Yeah. Like, she's looking back, and it could be like, stay the fuck away from me. Like, I'm traumatized. You, I don't and think there, it was there's that, no though. telling. And that's a scary part. This movie was terrifying. It's disturbing. And I, feel I loved like, it, though. I feel like maybe. <laughs> I feel like maybe that part when she turns around and that like almost kind of smile thing yeah. might be. And I obviously I'm looking way too deep into this because, you know, I didn't even know about that. But once you bring up the allegory for sure. But maybe that is like a comment on teenagers in general and that that was like her experience with how extreme emotion and thought, mostly negative, can end up destroying an entire family and also as a typical teenager she has now been confronted with what it is like to experience doing something bad doing something that you shouldn't do right this evil or whatever maybe 
is a comment on teenagers wanting to flirt with danger. Oh, yeah. They were spelling that out with her adopting his cigarette habit, yeah. her mm-hmm. riding a motorcycle without right. a helmet after they said right. they Clearly not didn't too. want her to. All the typical things a teenage girl would do to rebel. Ooh, I'm going to ride a motorcycle. I'm going to smoke. I'm going to, whatever, show a guy my bra, my little boobs. What we all do, right? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another cool point. The fucking guy, Colin Farrell, he gives this little boy, Martin, a watch. He gives him more time. And the boy is literally stealing time from him and from his family. I love that. I love this opposition of like time coming in and time going out. Like I'm giving you more time, literally a time piece. And then you're stealing time from me. I love that. That's life. One thing, you know, when it comes down to their arranged meetings from Martin and the Colin Farrell's character is, you know, they met at the outskirts of the city and they ended up meeting at the restaurant. You know, that was, that seemed like a frequent kind of thing. So the frequency of them meeting and spending so much time with each other was just, that was the negative part about it. I have a question to pose. We've talked a lot about how he was robbing time from his family and giving it to this Martin character. Considering the circumstances of him negligently robbing Martin of a father character, is it even wrong that he gives up some of his time? Because that, that's kind of where that came from. He felt guilt over robbing him of a father figure. Oh. That's why he tried to step in. But yes, the nature of that, right or wrong, takes time from both ends. I think you're right. So it was not required for him to give Martin that time to make up for the time that he stole from Martin. And I think that's alluded to by the argument between the surgeon and the anesthesiologist, who is the person who actually kills the patient. Mm -hmm. Remember, there was that. The responsibility was not his. The responsibility was no one's. It's something that just happened. And that's the way of the world. He didn't steal time from Martin. His father just died while he was trying to save him. And that's not on him. Does the alcohol aspect add anything to that? Because that's the only reason it's even a question, because he was drinking that morning. The fact that anesthesia is involved, that does add a random modifier to all of it. But a compromised surgeon, that is definitely a more heavily weighed variable. Yeah, true. But they don't make yeah. that explicitly clear. Right. So. Yeah. Right, right. He's letting this kid take up so much of his time because he, he took his father from him. Okay. But did he really take his father from him? Yes. Maybe he was drinking. Maybe he wasn't. But again, that wasn't really 100% clear whether he was or not. The anesthesiologist said that he was. But he had also just gotten a hand job from that guy's wife. Right. So he could have just told her anything. That's not necessarily true. And he said that he wasn't drinking that day. But I I imagine he lies to his wife. And I think the fact that he even... Yes. Everybody lies to everybody. (laughs) Right. But I think also the fact that he's so willing to give up his time to this kid, that leans more into the fact that he was drunk that day. Because if he wasn't, then he would have no guilt. Right. Because he would believe that it wasn't the surgeon's fault. That's true. Yeah. That's definitely true. And the fact that he was so willing to go over to Martin's house and like yeah. sit on the couch with his mom and like, Gave him you money know, whatever, too, yeah. like spend time there. If, yeah. if you're serious, you wouldn't have done that. That's yes. fucking weird. And, and ultimately, he <laughs> did pull the trigger, right? Right. Yeah. Like ultimately, maybe he was guilty and, that, and he knew it and he had to come to accept it. His yeah. wife came to accept it before he did, but he did go through with it. And depending on your views of cosmic Greek justice, mm-hmm. would these scales have even been tipped if he weren't responsible? 
Yeah, it just makes the end scene, you know, when they're sitting at the restaurant, the whole family had to make the decision of appeasing Martin as he sits across the other side of the restaurant. Yeah, I kind of saw that as the ultimate flex. Like, yeah. after it's all said and done, I'm going to come sit at the counter, and you got to get up and walk out because yeah. you have nothing to say. Because mm-hmm. right. you know that... That empty seat is there because of what you did, the guilt that you feel for what you took away from me. Yeah. Dark yeah. shit. Very dark. dark. Your ghost led the most. <laughs> Killing of a sacred deer. <laughs> <laughs> dark. That was dope. <laughs> uh, if you want to see more of his work, I definitely recommend The Lobster. It's a 2009 film. I believe it's on Netflix. It's about relationships, and that's all I'll say about it. Yeah. Any final thoughts? I'm glad that we had this conversation because it definitely changed my mind about the whole dialogue aspect of the movie. Now, I definitely do appreciate that lack of dialogue be able to, to highlight the moments when people were breaking and were being truly emotional. And that way you could really focus on the actual lesson to be learned from it about spending your time in the wrong places and lack of connection with your emotion and lack of taking responsibility or taking too much responsibility for what you have done in the past and how that can ruin your present and your future if you hold on to that too tightly. And also just keeping in mind your energy carries some weight with me i'll say and do things i'll say something that i feel like okay this is what you say right this is what humans say but maybe the energy there or what's in your head is different and i think this movie is kind of made to like hold up a mirror to that in you too and like to show you that there's more to just the dialogue of what goes on in your life and in a movie and in a scene there's all this other in between the line shit And this movie really made me reflect on that. Like, it's not just in what's said or whatever, how you carry yourself. It's like in everything in between. You know, in the movie, it was not just in the script. If you just read the script, it's probably reads and feels totally different than if you watch it because there's so many things that fall between those cracks. And I think that's a bigger representation of what goes on in real life to not just tune into the script, but actually pay attention to all the shit in between. That's what I got from this. When it comes to being a tragic drama, this is a great example of how your actions do lead to consequences because that's really what led to it. You know, he was a surgeon. He neglected his power of being that surgeon. Having someone die in his arms because of his neglect, it's going to manifest in one way or another. And, you know, they, they hit it out of the park by the end of the movie. Yeah. And again, this was my third time seeing it. So good film, in my opinion. Yes. Yeah. Go watch it. Okay. Yeah. This has been a short movie review session of The Art of Blind Spotting. Jeff. Katana. Jake. Lee. All right, cool. Have a good night. Swing. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you've heard, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook at The Art of Blind Spotting. You can also visit theartofblindspotting.com. Send an email to Jeff at theartofblindspotting.com if you have any questions, concerns, suggestions, complaints, hate mail, whatever. Remember, check your blind spots.